Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Ophthalmology. In this activity, ophthalmology experts Professor Sumit Garg and Dr. Karolini Rocha respond to questions from the ophthalmology community on IOL selection in cataract patients, focusing on the preoperative assessment of ocular health, optimising IOL calculations and the impact of previous surgeries on lens selection. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Alcon Vision LLC and Johnson & Johnson Surgical Vision Inc. and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Carolini Rocha. I'm a cornea cataract and refractive specialist, director of cornea here at Medical University of South Carolina. And I'm here today with a dear friend, uh, Dr. Sumit Garg. Um, uh, Dr. Garg is a professor of ophthalmology and vice chair at UC Irvine. So um, Dr. Garg, it's a pleasure to have you here today. And today we're gonna discuss basically how to optimize IOL selection for patients requiring cataract surgery. And and again, we're gonna also talk about uh, some complex cases. So what must we include in the pre-op assessment of patients scheduled for cataract surgery? So first, really important, uh, that past medical history, past ocular history, if the patients had any surgery, any dry eye symptoms, or maybe that patient had a pterygian surgery or any issues, right? And in current symptoms, are the patients experienced any visual loss or uh, issues with daily activities, and and again, anyone assess at that time a uh, visual goals, you know, patients' expectations. For testing, I can share what I do in my clinical practice. Um, definitely corneal topography and tomography is very important, especially when managing astigmatism. You want to rule out, you know, regular versus irregular astigmatism. Optical biometry. And then you need to have a plan to address, especially astigmatism correction. We're going to talk about that more. And I always um, get a macular OCT for every single patient, because especially someone, a patient with a dense cataract, sometimes you don't have a really good view of the macula, and you may miss an extrafoveal uh, ERM or a subfoveal drusen or anything that can compromise visual outcomes after cataract surgery. On the eye exam, you know, we, we want to make sure you do that complete eye exam, starting with eyelids. Again, we're looking for common things, blepharitis, uh, meibomian gland dysfunction, you know, the tear film, and you want to look at the cornea. You see epithelial basement membrane dystrophy or Salzman nodules, or even, you know, dry eyes, PEE. So those are things that we see on a daily basis. Um, cornea guttata, for example, right? So those are so important things when you're planning and selecting an IOL for the patients. And the iris, iris defects, it's a history of trauma. But again, it's so important to make the diagnosis prior to surgery. And I like to teach anything, you know, it's important to make the diagnosis prior to surgery. Anything you tell the patients after surgery is usually your fault. So this is your chance to do a really good um, preoperative testing um, and uh, eye exam. And then you will 
talk to the patients, you know, about surgery, what to expect, and uh, your post-op regimen, you know, again, can be dropless or if you're using drops after surgery, and just your flow and exactly what to expect during surgery, risks and benefits, and then your informed consent, right? So if you have a, a, a recommendation of a specific lens type, it's really, again, important to tell your patients what to expect um, after surgery. And we want to check all the box there. Professor Garg, so thank you again for being here today. So, but what do you do in your practice? Can you share with you, with us your pre-op um, evaluation? Yeah, th thanks, uh, Carolini, for having me. Um, so, you know, when we look at our preoperative patients, I think the history is very important. Um, you know, when you when you look at the preoperative assessment, the questions that I ask my patients are sort of what are their goals for their surgery? What are they trying to achieve? Um, have they had previous surgery? Sometimes they don't remember that they've had previous surgery or trauma. Um, knowing what their historic refraction is, I think that's a, a, a fine point that often gets overlooked. You know, are they starting out myopic? Are they starting out hyperopic? Do they have astigmatism? All these things are very important in choosing and counseling your patient. Have they worn contact lenses? Did they wear them recently? Do they wear hard contact lenses, soft contact lenses? All these impact our ability to get proper measurements, which then impacts uh, how we can treat these patients and how we can really try to nail our targets. Um, and then with respect to what do they want out of the surgery, you know, how tolerant are they to dysphotopsia? How how dependent or independent do they want to be from glasses? You know, I tell every patient that there's no free lunch here. So every every choice we make, there's some compromise, and we'll have to figure out what what will give you the most uh, optimal outcome with the most acceptable uh, sort of side effects or compromises. Those are great points. Thank you. Question two. So we have a 65-year-old female patient um, comes in with nighttime glare and halos, and she is willing to wear reading glasses some at a time. So what IOL would you consider for this patient? Yeah, this is a patient I would really want to talk to a little bit more about what her goals are. Uh, I think it's important for patients to realize that preoperative glare is different than postoperative glare. Oftentimes, preoperative glare is, you know, going to be impacted by the quality of the cataract, the location of the cataract, uh, and postoperative glare is, uh, in most cases, from a diffractive IOL. Uh, that being said, you know, a, a non-diffractive EDOF lens or some of these enhanced monofocal lenses would work really well for this patient. I think, um, in my hands, an enhanced monofocal lens, I usually target distance in their um, in their dominant eye and a little myopic offset in their non-dominant eye. Uh, and with that, you get uh, fairly good, you actually get really good distance vision and some usable intermediate and near. And I talk to my patients about what I'm doing. I think all too often we sort of uh, tell the patient that, hey, leave it to us. And, and, and then they're sort of, they have to figure it out afterwards what we've done. I, I, I'm very forward with telling them, hey, in your dominant eye, I'm going to try to go for distance. In your non-dominant eye, I'm going to go a little bit off. When you compare the two eyes, they may be a little different, but everyone's eyes are a little bit different and your brain will get used to it. And with that, I give you the best chance of getting some range of vision without uh, inducing any dysphotopsia. On the other hand, if she wasn't uh, so uh, against dysphotopsia and understood that perhaps the dysphotopsia profile after surgery would be different, 
then perhaps we could consider a diffractive uh, IOL or a diffractive EDOS lens. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Again, so important you know, to listen to your patients so you can match uh, the technology to the patient's needs. What techniques are available to detect conditions such as dry eye disease or epithelial basement membrane dystrophy? So what, what again do you do to optimize the ocular surface prior to cataract surgery? Yeah, another great question. So this is really important. If you're going to do refractive cataract surgery, you have to look at the ocular surface and you have to embrace treating the ocular surface. Uh, in many of our practices, the first time we see the patient is actually not the time we're signing up the patient for surgery, but we're seeing them and then we'll see them back in a year because their surgery, their cataract's not really ready yet. I use pretty much every opportunity I have to see the patient to talk about the importance of the ocular surface. We know that the cornea and that where the tear film is, is a responsible for two thirds of the focusing power of the eye. And if there's any irregularity there, no matter how special a lens or standard lens you put in their eye, still the majority of focusing happens at the ocular surface. So really important to look at the ocular surface. Uh, when you use your slit lamp and you look at the tear film, you want to look at uh, not only for SPK, but you want to look at the regularity of the tear film. You want to look at how, um, how rapid the tear breakup time is. You want to look at the meibomian glands. Uh, you know, the ASCRS uh, Cornea Clinical Committee a few years ago put out um, their algorithm with the uh, pull, push, lift, look um, sort of way of looking at the ocular surface. I think that's really important. The other thing that's really important, I think that's helpful is using um, things like tomography or topography and not just looking at the numbers that those tests generate, but looking at the patterns and looking to see how regular the actual patterns are. I think that's very, very important. And really it can be a, a nice educational tool to help show your patient, hey, look, look at this, you see this bow tie, this is why I'm recommending a toric lens. You see how this is, looks like it's irregular over here. This is why you need to treat your dryness and we can reevaluate that prior to making a final lens choice for you. Um, so to me, you know, ocular surface optimization is really, really key uh, and it's important to embrace it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was very helpful. How do we optimize biometry and IOL calculations for best postoperative refract outcomes in cataract patients. So if you remember the older generation formulas or regression formulas, the SRK formula, we used to look only at K readings, uh, corneal power, axial length, and A constant. But now with newer generation formulas, there's a lot of other metrics and parameters that we need to take into account. For example, white to white measurements, we now are looking at corneal thickness, anterior chamber depth, lens thickness, um, of course, our axial length and K readings. And, um, and in most formulas, we're actually still estimating the effective lens position. So when we look at all the formulas available to us um, these days, uh, Virgin's formulas are third generation formulas. All the Barrett formulas are actually uh, versions formulas. Ray tracing is the Olsen formula, and artificial intelligence is the uh, Hill RBF. Now we actually are version uh, three for the Hill RBF artificial intelligence uh, um, formula. So we know that in normal eyes, most formulas they perform really well, and the challenges are now with short eyes and long eyes. So let's start talk a little bit about long eyes. 
So if you're still using a third generation formula, it's really important to use the Young Coke adjustment uh, for axial length. We know that the Olsen formula, ray tracing formula, works really well for long eyes, right? So that requires anterior chamber depth and lens thickness. The Barrett, uh, it's very good for high myopes, and especially if you're using minus uh, power uh, lenses. And the Heal RBF. So Heal RBF, because it uses artificial intelligence, is good for short and long eyes, right? So, but I can share what I do in my practice, especially for short eyes. You know, I like it. I, I like to look at different formulas. I usually look at the Barrett um, and the Heal RBF. Dr. Garg, thank you again for being here with us. And uh, we have a few questions for you. Um, sure. If you want uh, to share with us, how do the third, fourth, and all the newer generation formulas um, uh, how are they uh, different uh, in your practice? Yeah, I think you did a really great job uh, going over this there just a second ago, Carolini. Um, the, you know, if we look back to the way formulas used to be, the first generation, we're actually just looking at refraction. Then we looked at regression, and you mentioned third generation formulas or vergence. And the third generation formulas did really well for us. I mean, if you look at the vast majority of patients were, I think, 80% within half a diopter of, of target. Um, and, and again, this goes back to our previous section where this is when you've taken the time to optimize surface, get good repeatable measurements, uh, consistency across your different uh, diagnostic um, equipment. Um, the newer generation formulas, now you know we look at um, ray tracing and we look at um, artificial intelligence. And there's some formulas that use multiple different ways to uh, to try to give us the best outcomes possible. And by and large, you know, I agree with you. I, I look at multiple different formulas for pretty much every patient. I don't rely just on one reading. I want to make sure there's an agreement amongst the different formulas that we have. And to me, that allows, that gives me a little bit more confidence in, in choosing a lens power for my patient, especially in eyes that can be more complex. That is great. And I would like to share a publication with Jack Holiday's group. They look at over 10,000 eyes, right? And it's really nice comparing all the formulas across the board for normal eyes. All formulas, they work really well. When we look at shallow chambers or the hyperopes and long eyes is when we really see a trend from one formula. But when you look at the Barrett and, for example, Kane formulas, they work really well across the board. So those are definitely safe formulas, modern formulas, and artificial intelligence. I agree. Thank you. So in what scenario should we use the Young Coke adjustment? And are you still um, using the Young Coke adjustment for long eyes? Yeah, so the Wang Coke adjustment, you know, uh, is meant for eyes that have an axial length of over 25. And, you know, that seems like really long, but we see, we see patients with 25 uh, axial length and greater pretty often. And so uh, the way uh, there's multiple um, iterations of this adjustment, uh, but essentially you do the adjustment and then you plug that adjusted a constant um, or sorry axial length back into your um, your formula, and then that spits out the the newer adjusted uh, lens power. And so um, I use it from time to time, but with some of the newer generation formulas, I feel like I don't I'm not dependent on it. So. Uh, like you mentioned, the Barrett works really well for long eyes and short eyes, and it's readily available on some of our biometers and 
some of the free um, IOL calculators that are uh, available online. So to me, I, I've been using uh, the Barrett predominantly, but if I have a question, I will I will uh, pull out my calculator and do the, the Wang Coke adjustment and see if, if there's agreement. Again, looking at multiple formulas for these patients. I agree. And I just would like to add that the evil formula, it's another good formula uh, for long guys. So Professor Greg, I have a 70-year-old male patient with bilateral cataracts and corneal astigmatism. So the topography shows regular astigmatism. When, when I look at the magnitude and, and the orientation of astigmatism, when I look at my refraction, keratometry, and biometry, those are all very similar. So which IOL formula would you use to achieve, you know, the best uh, refractive outcomes for this patient? This is, uh, I wish was a, a more regular patient for our clinics. Uh, seems like everything was lining up for this patient and exactly what we want. We want agreement between their biometry and their topography. Sometimes I'll get a second topography to look at it. Uh, but ideally, you want your magnitude and your axis of astigmatism to be, uh, to correlate amongst your different testing. And this patient does. Uh, I've found really great um, outcomes using the Barrett Torque Calculator, uh, which is available on the ASCRS website. It's also available on uh, the biometer that we use. So uh, for me, that's been really um, quite good in, in helping me really target uh, these patients. Uh, the one thing that it, it includes is, uh, again, from, from uh, Dr. Koch and Dr. Wang, is posterior corneal astigmatism. And I think that's been a real game changer in, in sort of my outcomes for toric lenses, uh, particularly when looking at against the rule of stigmatism and with the rule of stigmatism, you know, you want to overcorrect against the rule of stigmatism and sort of undercorrect with the rule of stigmatism to compensate for that posterior corneal astigmatism. The Barrett calculator has that compensation already built into it. So uh, to me, that's been my go-to. Uh, in patients uh, like this, I'll also use intraoperative aberometry to help sort of verify uh, what I've calculated already uh, and just looking for agreement. So a, a double check for me, if you will, uh, prior to really dialing that lens into place on the table. That is great. Thank you. No, I agree. I think, again, with, with the rule, we usually under-treat because of the posterior corneal astigmatism and everything we learn. And against the rule, we're a little more aggressive addressing those patients. And I agree, again, if I'm looking at the measurements and the axis, especially as, as the difference is greater than 15 degrees is when I like to use uh, interoperative barometry. Yeah, and I, I'll add one more thing. I, you know, I'm, I'm targeting the lowest residual astigmatism that I can. So uh, depending on the age of the patient and, and sort of the, the lens that I'm using, uh, I will uh, oftentimes flip them a little bit to try to, to try to get the lowest residual amount of astigmatism rather than undercorrecting and leaving them in their, in their sort of natural axis. So what new IOL formulas are emerging that show a promise of uh, improved accuracy? Anything new coming up? Yeah, great question. I mean, there, there's, all, there's a bunch of, you know, new formulas, sort of fringe formulas that are out there. Um, you know, if you look at some of the papers that are out there, they're in certain populations or certain papers, they show uh, various uh, advantages over some of the, the sort of tried and true formulas. You know, the Barrett formula is still something that I think is relatively new for a lot of surgeons, and they're not using that frequently. You mentioned the Hill RBF formula. There's the Evo formula. There's the Kane formula. Uh, so there's multiple formulas out there. 
again, I my practice is to to look at several formulas and look for agreement. And oftentimes, I'll look at some of the newer formulas, and then I'll also look at some of the more historical formulas, some of the the regular virgins formulas. Holiday one formula was a great formula for for normal eyes, and I'll look for agreement there because if there's a lot of disagreement, then I try to try to figure out what why that is and try to figure out what lens will give me uh, the most optimal outcome for my patient. This is great. So most formulas are still estimating that effective lens position. ELP is still right like a question mark. And I know there's some studies now trying to use sometimes intraoperative uh, OCT to look at that lens meridian position. And uh, again, in combining all that information with artificial intelligence, I think um, the future is bright and we can definitely be uh, more precise, more and more precise with our IOL calculations. How do um, pre-refractive surgery and corneal pathologies and cataract patients impact biometry, IOL calculations, and lens selection? So, you know, when we see a patient that had a refractive surgery, so we know that the changes in the corneal shape, you know, that will change that relationship between the anterior and posterior corneal curvature. And uh, refractive surgery can induce some high-order aberrations. For example, if someone had myopic LASIK, we tend to see increased positive spheric aberration. In post-hyperopic LASIK, it's the opposite. We usually see negative spheric aberration and some coma from decentered um, ablations. So sometimes, this, again, it's hard, a little harder to obtain measurements or reliable measurements, especially highly aberrated corneas or patients that had RK, several cuts and AK cuts. And um, those patients, post-RK patients, especially sometimes were high myopes, predicting that final effective lens position can be challenging. And you can still see some uh, refractive surprises, especially post-RK cases and um, complications from surgery, dry eyes. Um, and, and patients' expectations are very high because when they had the LASIK, they had perfect vision. So they are coming in from, for cataract surgery and they think they're going to see well for distance and reading. So managing patients' expectations can be challenges in this group um, of patients post-refractive surgery. So common uh, corneal pathologies that we see, uh, Dr. Garg mentioned before, ocular surface disease, you know, the dry eye or the dry eye masquerades, right, or, uh, that we see on a daily basis, epithelial basement membrane dystrophy, Salzman's, conjunctival chalases, or pterygian, or anything that can cause an irregular tear film blepharitis or history of keratitis or history of infectious keratitis, corneal ulcers, neurotrophic corneas, it's a long um, list, and, and even um, corneal uh, dystrophies. So considerations for patients with corneal pathologies. So when you see the patients before surgery, right? So again, we want to get the best possible measurements, corneal topography, tomography, um, optical biometry, and we want to make sure, you know, the, the, the measurements are reliable. It's important to treat those patients before surgery. If it's a dry eye disease, you know, I like to treat four weeks, bring the patient back and repeat all the measurements. 
Um, and you want to educate your patients, right? Sometimes they get a little upset. Like, I'm here for cataract surgery. You need to tell them, no, it's really important to address your condition prior to surgery. If it's epithelial basement membrane, you may need to consider superficial keratectomy or a PTK and bring the patients back. And then um, when you see those patients after that procedure, then is when you need to make a decision uh, to choose what would be the best IOL option um, for that patient. So, and then during surgery, there's some um, intra-op uh, surgical factors, right, that can damage the ocular surface or drops or if someone with dry eyes and then they're using drops after surgery, you know, the cording can decompensate. So, all those things that we need to um, talk to our patients prior to surgery. And then after surgery, um, you need to always try to maximize your outcomes, treat the dry eye disease, um, any residual refractive error, address the residual refractive error, and if they eventually develop uh, posterior capsular pacification, you should consider YAG laser. Professor Garg, uh, thank you again for being here with us. Why we should not use in re a regular IOL formula uh, for patients uh, post-refractive surgery? Yeah, this is a very important question. And a lot of it comes down to how we're measuring the cornea with our uh, traditional uh, measuring devices. So typically, uh, a biometer is going to measure the paracentral cornea and then extrapolate the central corneal power. And in someone who's had myopic LASIK, what ends up happening is their cornea is flatter than what is actually being extrapolated. So you end up with a higher uh, corneal power, which means you're going to end up with a lower powered lens, which means you're going to end up with a hyperopic error. And the exact opposite is true of uh, post-hyperopic LASIK. The other thing is, you know, many of our formulas, um, the index of refraction is, um, is estimated based on that anterior corneal curvature. And we know that the relationship between the anterior and posterior cornea is different in post-myopic LASIK and post-hyperopic LASIK. And that those, those relationships are then oftentimes how these formulas um, predict the ELP. And, and we know that ELP or effective lens position is a really important factor in how someone ends up post-surgery. And so uh, these are just some of the reasons why you can't just use normal uh, IOL um, calculations and then, you know, even if you use a fudge factor, uh, which most people have gone away from, um, you can still be off in, in a large percentage of patients. So we're lucky that we have other tools available to us to help these patients. Dr. Garg, I have a 62-year-old female patient who had LASIK 20 years ago. Um, what is the best IOL formula to use and what type of IOL would you consider for this patient and why? This is a loaded question, Dr. Rocha. Uh, there's a lot here to unpack. So if you look at the question, you know, 62-year-old um, female with LASIK 20 years ago. So LASIK 20 years ago was not quite as precise as LASIK is now. So you have to look to see how much LASIK they had, you know, was, uh, what the pattern looks like. Was it myopic or hyperopic? Um, was, you know, an important question for these patients is, were they happy with their vision post-LASIK? If they were never happy with their vision post-LASIK, you have to be really careful to look for irregular astigmatism, or as you mentioned earlier, decentered ablation. Um, with respect to which formula to use, uh, I really rely on the ASCRS website. 
uh, and I plug in the information that I have available on the patient and look to see what the different formulas um, will predict. Uh, if I had to pick one formula, uh, recently I found very good um, outcomes with using the Barrett uh, True K formula uh, for these patients. I feel like that's been um, quite accurate in in uh, in patients that are at least with postmyopic LASIK. And then when you look at LASIK, you mentioned spherical aberration and induction spherical aberration for, you know, for the myopic patient uh, and post-hyperopic patients have more negative spherical aberration. Uh, so it really depends on the type of LASIK that they had, the uh, success of the LASIK, what the corneal optics look like uh, to determine the type of lens. Um, for post-hyperopic LASIK patients, I frequently put in uh, more traditional lenses um, that have a positive spherical aberration to, with them to try to uh, offset their negative spherical aberration. And then for patients who have uh, myopic LASIK, either I'm putting a, a zero spherical aberration lens or a, uh, a negative spherical aberration correcting lens for them. And on, on occasion, I'll even put in a, um, a diffractive uh, EDOS lens if they had successful, successful LASIK, uh, myopic LASIK that was uh, low in magnitude. If someone had a lot of LASIK, I worry about all the higher order aberrations that were induced. What is the best formula for calculating the IOL power in hyperopic patients that had refractive surgery, post-hyperopic LASIK? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this answer is, is very similar to the last uh, question. You know, post-hyperopic patients, uh, hyperopic LASIK patients, uh, it depends on, again, how much hyperopic LASIK they had, um, how long ago the treatment was. We find that in a lot of these patients, especially if they had low amounts of hyperopic LASIK, they sort of regress back to almost normal, and there's not a lot of compensation needed. I do look at spherical aberration in these patients, uh, and this is where uh, I'm really looking at the centration of the, of the treatment. It's not uncommon for hyperopic treatments to be off-center, and that has big implications, like you mentioned, in coma and uh, irregular astigmatism and just overall corneal optics. Um, and this is, again, another situation where I do look at the ASCRS website and I look at multiple formulas and try to, uh, you know, look between the different formulas for some agreement. Dr. Gar, would you approach optical biometry in uh, which eye, what would you consider in patients with keratoconus? So this is another hard question for you today. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so, you know, keratoconus patients are, they come in, you know, obviously different severity. And patients with mild keratoconus, sort of Ks under 48, just say, sort of in the mild category, that have uh, somewhat regular astigmatism, especially centrally, you know, those are patients where you don't really need to do a lot of adjustment for them. Uh, once you get into the moderate uh, grade of um, keratoconus, sort of 48 to 52 on the keratometry, or severe greater than 52, this is where you get into more trouble. Um, with respect to toric lenses and keratoconic patients, what I'm looking for is if they were successful uh, patients, meaning they had good vision with glasses prior to development of their cataract, they may be a reasonable candidate for a toric lens. Uh, if they were always contact lens dependent, particularly a hard contact lens, I steer away from any kind of toric lens because I want to leave them the option to have a contact lens afterwards. Uh, the really difficult ones are the really steep patients because oftentimes the predicted lens power is very, very low, which often leads to post-operative hyperopia. And, uh, you know, I think um, if you're going to be off with your refractive power 
in patients, I think residual myopia is much more tolerated than residual hyperopia. So there was an interesting uh, paper which showed that in patients with really steep corneas, perhaps it's best to use a, um, not the measured K, but use a K, an average K of, I, I think it was 43.25 and still aim a little myopic. Um, and with those patients, they found that they were closer to emotropia um, and, and maybe ended up a little bit myopic rather than a hyperopic miss. So, you know, again, keratoconics depends on the regularity of their eye, how steep there are, their eyes are, their uh, dependence on glasses versus a contact lens, and really what their goals are uh, with respect to which lens to use and which IOL to use. But in general, uh, if they're really, really severe, I'm sticking to a monofocal lens trying to leave them a little bit myopic because uh, I want to be able to get them back into a contact lens. And um, I think a, a myopic fit on a contact lens is going to be better than a hyperopic fit for a contact lens. Thank you so much, Dr. Gardet. That This was excellent. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Rosha. Thank you to our faculty. And thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access additional content on this and related topics at www.touchophthalmology.com.